G'day, podcasting friends of the show. We have begun a new topic, the new topic of Islam and the politics and stereotypes attached to that. I have a few episodes loaded in this series ready to go. And this first one, I hope, will trigger some people and and make and, and be an uncomfortable perspective for some people to listen to. I'm hoping if it isn't, that's all right. Hopefully the next one will be. But if it is fantastic, if you make it to the end, send me a DM. I'll send you the coveted golden emoji. But as you're listening, if you think that there is a question I missed or a perspective from someone that you know or have heard of or read their book that you would like me to reach out to and include in this series on Islam, then email the show, ideasdigest at gmail.com or shoot me a DM on Instagram at ideasdigest. And I will reach out and attempt to get them on the show. Now, obviously, making my job easier to get people on the show is by increasing the show's clout, which we all can do as a team by leaving an Apple podcast review. Five stars really helps the algorithm and the clout of the show. When someone looks up my show, they go, wow, look at all these reviews. That's thanks to everyone who listens. So thank you in advance for that one. If you would like to support the show in any way, there is a side podcast called, Oi, tell us what you really think, where myself and friends of the show actually just sit down and chat about the episodes that we did. I tell you what I think, my friends say what they think, and we just kind of are open and honest about the challenges that I faced recording the podcast, some of the thoughts I might have had as I was talking to the guest, and where I end, where I lean on a particular subject. So with all that being said, Enjoy the episode, and remember, if it triggers you, send me a message. I'll give you a golden emoji. They're fantastic. I'm right and you're wrong. Once you start labeling people. Categorizing of humans and ideas. You have desensitized yourself to the humanity of that other human being. To who they really are. And in the marketplace of ideas. These things are complicated, man. We all need to engage with a variety of viewpoints. A genuine multicultural connection with another. I mean, sometimes you don't need to agree or disagree. You just need to sit with it and digest. G'day, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Ida's Digest, the podcast where we grow our empathy by exploring challenging ideas that exist just outside of our echo chamber. We don't really come across them much. Uh, my name's Conrad, and if you're a new friend of the show tuning in for the first time, a very special welcome to you, new friend of the show. But I will level with you. Uh, and I'll be honest and say this podcast is not for everyone and therefore might not be for you. Um, each week we explore new political, religious or social ideas that divide us. These are the things that really drive us apart. And rather than debate or argue or, you know, sit down and write a real sharp, snarky tweet, instead of doing all that, we sit and we do our best to try and understand where the person is coming from and try and understand the idea. So whether you agree or disagree is not really the point. Um, and I suppose that is why this podcast practice might not be for you. Because um, it isn't easy to put aside our opinion for long enough to understand a new perspective. But if you're up for it, here we go. Jump into the clickbait because that's what gets people clicking and hopefully will mislead you somehow. The clickbait for this episode, I've, I just steal my clickbait. I try and find it wherever I can. And this one is Islamists and lefties hate the West. Um, we don't know where that's going to go, but let's introduce new friend of the show, Dr. Zudi Jassa. Welcome to the Ideas Digest podcast. Thanks for having me, Conrad. It's great to be with you. Thank you. Now, 
I'm detecting that accent, and so I'm going to just uh, throw my first assumption at you. Dr. Jassa, you've got to be an American. Absolutely. Uh, red-blooded American, uh, love this country, and uh, my family's from Syria, but I grew up and was born in the U.S. and grew up in Wisconsin, small town in Wisconsin. Uh-huh. And, I, and, and for people watching on YouTube, there's the American flag pin. There's nothing more patriotic than the American <laughs> flag pin. So. I had to wear it. <laughs> I had to wear it. When I went to, I was in Australia for a, a 10 day tour on 2019 in March and I wore it everywhere I went and you, most people loved it. Two, 2000, 2019. Wow. Pre pandemic. That's the most recent visit to Australia you can get. I know. I know. It was in March and uh, we were in Melbourne and then in Sydney. Let's say in 2019, we ran into each other somewhere in Melbourne you know, walking the streets and we just met and I just said to you, oh, g'day, Dr. Jasser. Um, my name's Conrad. Who are you and what do you do? You're on a tour here. Like, who are you? What do you do? Well, um, I am uh, an American who served in the U.S. Navy. I'm currently, I tell you, I'm currently a physician in private practice, uh, decided to devote my life to taking care of patients and uh, doing primary care and medical ethics. I, I teach medical ethics and bioethics and do ethics consultations. Uh, but also the reason I'm in Australia, or I was in Australia, is I, I formed an organization post 9-11 called the American Islamic Forum for Democracy. And uh, many of us uh, felt that uh, the, the reforms against theocracy that America went through, that's part of our founding principles and founding uh, uh, you know, precepts that created our constitution and fought a war against the Brits, uh, uh, against theocracy, if you will, was a was a movement that had to happen within Islam, and we we saw as Muslims that loved America and loved secular democracy. We saw radical Islam, Al Qaeda, uh, and its terrorism as a symptom. And as a doctor, I I've always felt that you don't treat symptoms. That you might occasionally give patients a little analgesics or you know antiemetics or whatever. But the bottom line is is you got to treat the cause. You got to treat the disease. And the disease of 9-11, now we're almost to the 20th anniversary of that, the disease is political Islam. And just like most religions, uh, major religions that needed reform, terrorism is a symptom of a deeper problem, which is the lack of separation of mosque and state in Islam. So that was really our goal, was to, to do that. And it brought me now to national and international work that we do uh, against uh, uh, political Islam. And uh, we feel there's no better laboratory to do that work than in America. Well, it's, it's very nice to meet you. And it's an, extensive, it's an extensive resume. And I've got to be honest, Dr. Jasser, when we meet people, we form assumptions about them and we often judge them. So we've, we've just met and I want to be honest with you and play a little, a little game. Uh, and that game is, Dr. Jasser, I want to confess my assumptions to you so that you can correct the record and say, no, that's incorrect. Or, no, you know, you got me there. That's the correct one. How's that sound? Sure, absolutely. I'm used to it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. I want to get to that. Friends of the show love it when, when we can keep answers to a yes or no. Um, if you can play the advanced level of that game to a yes or no, or you can add in a bit of nuance if, if you like. Um, sure. But get ready for some, some, blunt, some blunt stereotypes here. Um, so let me confess my assumptions. You're an American, you're in Australia. You can tell me if you came across this one, but the Australian assumption to Americans is 
mate, bloody Americans, they're so arrogant. Dr. Jassa, American, are you arrogant? No. No. Okay. Did you come across that in Australia? Uh, yes, but not as much as I thought I would. You know, I do think that uh, there is sort of a, a sometimes a haughtiness that is uh, implied that Americans, because of the two oceans on each side, we sort of feel that uh, we are a world un unto ourselves. There's a little bit of ethnocentrism that happens sometimes in America. But as an Amer as an immigrant, I'm not an immigrant. My, fa my family's immigrants who escaped tyranny in Syria. Uh, I can tell you that uh, uh, I see America as an immigrant country. And I was impressed by how diverse Australia's uh, immigrant community is. Uh, so, uh, yeah, a few people said that to me. But I have to tell you, the message that I always talked about, uh, I think, made a lot of that melt away. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I did some Googling on you, uh, Dr. Jasper, as well. And this makes, this makes this game real easy for me. And as I do some Googling, you're all over Fox News. Now, Australian friends of the show, our bloody mate, Rupert Murdoch, he's in America with some news channels. He owns all of our channels here. And so you're all over Fox News, Rupert Murdoch's favorite channel. So based on the stereotypes of Fox News, I'm going to fire some at you here. Um, and these are mainly American. For Australian listeners, Sky News is the sister program in Australia for the conservative there. So based on that, Dr. Jasser, and we're already, you've, your intro has kind of dispelled some of these, but you're on Fox News. You've got to be a hardline conservative Christian then. I'm absolutely an orthodox, uh, uh, devout Muslim, and uh, I'm... A conservative. I don't know if I'd call myself hardline. I'm actually politically a conservative with libertarian leanings uh, when it comes to my sense of the role of government in life. Uh, so uh, I would break that stereotype pretty strongly. And um, yet, but you know, in high school, I had a column. I've been a Republican my whole life. I had a column in the newspaper called On the Right Track. Uh, so I'm, I'm an unapologetic uh, conservative. Uh, but you know, I will tell you that part of the stereotype that we're always on Fox News, uh, it's not from want of trying to be on MSNBC and CNN. Uh, when I was in Australia, we tried to book uh, ABC um, and I have been interviewed on their podcast before. Uh, but uh, uh, the message they want is one on the left of Muslims as victims. When Muslims present themselves as patriots and, and as folks who want to take responsibility for reforms necessary, sometimes it doesn't feed into the left's narrative for their their agenda. And also, by the way, on Fox News, you'll find that I push back against some stereotypes that might exist on the right when it comes to uh, Muslims, whether it uh, has to do with Sharia or other things. So uh, I think that uh, as much as there's stereotypes that come with it, I think there's a lot of good that I bring the Muslim community by being in those uh, networks. Mm -hmm. Another one you uh, you might come across being on Fox News, and it's probably the heaviest one. Dr. Jasser, you're on Fox News. You must then be racist. Absolutely not. And uh, I, I don't see Muslims as a race. Uh, I don't uh, uh, see Islam as a race. It's an idea. And uh, it's a very diverse community from the Arabic to the Western to the uh, Asian, East Asian, uh, uh, we are a very diverse community. So the racialization of Islam is something that the, the Islamists try to do and those who speak on our behalf. Uh, but I, And I never felt at any time, whether I was being interviewed by folks who I'm 
good friends with from Mark Levin to, uh, uh, you know, the other uh, pundits, uh, Tucker Carlson and others that are on Fox. I've never in my life felt uh, that I was treated in any way, but uh, as a respected American. So then to, to go back to the other side, you say you're a devout Muslim. The stereotype that you've early on dispelled that I was going to say, we can skip it, saying you're pretty anti-American. The American pin on your lapel there says the opposite. So then you mustn't, you mustn't be a true Muslim. You must be just a di- like, because maybe true Muslims wouldn't be pro-American. Well, this is the, you've now hit on the focus, the focus of our work, which is that uh, um, my book, A Battle for the Soul of Islam, that I published uh, with Simon & Schuster in 2013, was about the fact that my fear, you know, our work is not, I'm not as interested in reforming Islam. That is, you know, to my faith is God's religion and God will judge us if we reform, you know, and do what we should. But I am worried about whether my kids and my grandkids feel comfortable being Americans and being Muslim and that there's no conflict between that. So when you have Islamists running governments like Iran, Saudi Arabia, Turkey with the AKP, the Muslim Brotherhood was running Egypt, these parties, they are political parties, but they also believe that the state identity should be Islamic, that the constitution should be the Quran. Pakistan is an Islamic Republic. Iran is an Islamic Republic. Those governments believe that law is not human, but rather God, and the legislators should then legislate black and white. That's not Western liberated enlightenment, postmodern society, if you will. And those ideas, if we don't start to mesh what it means to be American with a reformed 21st century Islam, then you're going to see the misogyny, the uh, anti-Semitism, the racism that's part of uh, political Islam, and uh, uh, the ideas that are incompatible with America as I know it, that truly is supposed to be and is, I believe, the most racially uh, blind uh, uh, country in the world, is, is based on a Bill of Rights that uh, uh, treats everybody equally versus Iran and Saudi Arabia that have endemic racism in their societies. So I think a lot of these things that I see as being, I mean, I can tell you that when my family helped build mosques in Wisconsin, in Arkansas, and now in Arizona, we felt that we could practice our faith more freely in America or in Australia than you could in Saudi Arabia or Iran. Now that might make your head spin because those are so-called Islamic countries. But I can tell you the only Muslims that are free in those countries are the ones that are running the mosques and running the government that force their religion down the throat of every Muslim. If you're a Muslim that rejects the the interpretation, the the drac, you know draconian interpretation of the Saudi government or the Iranian government, uh, you are put in prison, tortured, or shipped out, or killed. And that is not the Islam I know. It's not the Islam I practice or was taught by my parents. Uh, but the Islam that I can practice, where I'm able to pick and choose the things that I believe. Uh, and and interpret things in the way my father or my mother taught me, that's an American Islam that I think is compatible with our country. Mm -hmm. What judgments did I miss there? What what ones have you come across or come across often that that I might have missed? So I think, you know, that's key for people to think about is, so it's easy for me to say Islam is compatible with America. But the reality, well, is the reality of it compatible? And 
Uh, listen, I'm not under any illusions that, uh, you know, when I was uh, in the Navy uh, before 2001, before 9-11, uh, I never thought I was going to be spending my time doing such a, a, a deep uh, dive into countering radical Islam and the theolo theological underpinnings of political Islam. Uh, but I thought over time it would eventually reform itself, and it hasn't. So one of the, the toughest stereotypes to fight is the, the folks that say, well, Zudi is sort of an anathema. He is a, a mutation of the DNA of Islam, which is theocratic, which is black and white, and doesn't have any shades of gray, and, and that, in fact, we are a minority. Now, that stereotype is true if you're looking at the leadership of the Muslim communities, the leadership of mosques, the leadership of governments, uh, those who are running the government of Syria, Iran, etc., or the mosques, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood groups in the West. But if you look at the vast population of Muslims, we're a very decentralized faith. I will tell you, I agree. Sometimes people use an analogy to say that political Islam, uh, Islamic regimes are like Nazism, they're fascists or theo-fascists. Um, in some ways, if you look at uh, some of the anti-Semitism and the way that Jews are treated by um, major Muslim media globally, there's some truth to that. But the reality is the vast majority of Muslims reject that, but they have been asleep, no different than the silent Germans were asleep as Hitler rose to power. Many Muslims reject the ideology of theocrats, but they're not joining us in our mission and our Muslim reform movement. They're not stepping forward. They're sitting in the comfort of their homes in countries that do separate church and state, like Australia and the United States and, and Europe, and they don't feel like they have to do anything. And I can tell you that if I was doing the work I'm doing now in Syria or Iraq or Egypt, we would not last three months and we'd be shut down or, or put in prison. That's why the Muslims that are in the West have a responsibility to do this work. So some of the stereotypes that say that, well, most Muslims believe in Sharia and this is what they do, there's some truth to that because they're not doing anything to change their condition. And I, I say this as a devout Muslim where God tells us that those who do not work to change their own condition uh, um, deserve the plight that they have. So this is an issue is that we have to recognize that we can't blame the West. We can't blame conspiracy theories. That's another part of so many things I hear from Muslim populations that say I'm part of some Zionist conspiracy theory and uh, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm a traitor within the Muslim community. That's an identity politic that refuses to take on the responsibility of the ideas that truly are things that, that uh, control our communities. Sounds like to me, and correct me where I'm off track, you're, you're describing the general movement of Islam as being hostile to democratic countries like Australia, like America, and that most Muslims, even like aside from the dicta dictatorial regimes in the countries you've mentioned, um, most Muslims within Australia or America are like complicit or silently complicit in if they if we don't act you're saying if we don't if islam isn't actively reformed then it poses some kind of threat to democracy is that the picture you're painting i would just change the word islam that you use there with islamism 
and the 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 central nugget of our work when you started with the uh the the, the comment that uh lefties and and islam hate america um i would tell you that islamists and progressivists far leftist socialists i call them the red green axis the the green if you look in the un the Venezuelas and the Cubas of the world and the Chinas of the world work very closely with the Irans, uh, the uh, uh, Turkeys, the Islamists of the world, which are political Islamist theocratic parties. When in fact, you look at some of the core values uh, of the far left, which is often atheist, uh, uh, pro-gay rights, feminists, are very much incompatible with political Islam when it comes to their draconian uh, treatment of women and gays and others. So yet they join parties in a red-green axis because they hate secular democracy, so they unite against the far left. So I think it's important that people understand that there is a difference in my heart between what I see as political Islam, which is the cancer, and a liberated personal Islam, which I see as the solution to political Islam. So just like before America, there was no secularized Christianity, uh, there was large wars. Uh, Eight million people died in the religious wars in Europe uh, in the early 16th century, I believe. So that process, I think there's still a very bloody process, as we see in my parents' motherland of Syria, that is still happening between ISIS and the on the on the Islamist side and the far right fascists of Assad. Those wars are going to start playing themselves out, uh, and right now. The Islam of the Khomeinists of Iran, of the Brotherhood, of ISIS, of, of Jamaat Islami in Pakistan is incompatible. It's, it's at war with the West. Uh, but the Islam of, of those who believe in secular democracy is not. But we are a minority voice when it comes to activists uh, globally. Can you um, just go over and define the the kind of the key difference there so you're saying you're you're using the term islamists as opposed to islam are you repositioning then saying no no i'm muslim i like i follow the teaching of islam but what what is what's turned what you're calling political islam are you using that as islamists as yeah yeah unpack term for me yeah so um just like the term communist socialist capitalist the IST terms are political movements. Islamist is the political movement of Islam. And classically, in, in America, for example, we have two major political parties, but there are other political parties, and those parties have a platform. So Islamist, if you look Hamas, for example, in the Palestinian areas, Hamas in Arabic is an acronym that stands for in Arabic, Harikat al-Muslimiyyah, uh, which stands for the Islamic Movements that are a political party and Hamas has a platform. So every political party, the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt has a platform. So uh, uh, Islamism, a lot of the Western Muslim groups try to avoid, they say, oh, don't use the term Islamist because Westerners get confused and they think it's, they think it means terrorist. It doesn't mean terrorist. I think Islamism is a conveyor belt towards terrorism and it is a autocratic and theocratic ideology. But at the end of the day, in Arabic, everybody knows in the Middle East who the Islamists, because we use that term in Arabic, Islamiyin, which means people who come together in a political party with a platform based on enacting Islamic jurisprudence 
into government. That's number one. The second plank of Islamism is the belief that the national identity, the flag, is unified under Islam as an identity. So the Islamic State concept. The classic example globally right now is Iran. It's an Islamic Republic. Its flag has Quranic script on it. They, they believe in Islam being the identity. I, as a Muslim, love my faith. Muslims are people who practice the faith of Islam. I love my faith, but I would never, not only would I never die for Islam as a, as a state, but I would fight it tooth and nail as a concept because I do not want my faith as part of my national identity. Yes, in America, we can have a constitution under God, but it's under God. It's not under Christianity. It's not under Islam. It's under God. So I think that's a very different concept that was a postmodern uh, uh, revolutionary concept in the separation of mosque and state. And in America, you have the first liberty being freedom of religion, but it wasn't under one particular religion. It was individual freedom of religion. So I think Islam doesn't have that yet codified in our interpretations. And I don't think it's incompatible with our Quranic interpretations, but it's naive to think that somehow that interpretation has existed. There's a number of scholars, Mustafa Akyol, who's at Cato Institute. Uh, you've got Abdullah Naim out of Emory University. You've got uh, Fatima Marnisi, who is Moroccan, talked about secular democracy. Uh, Abdul Karim Sarush, who was an Iranian scholar who talked about Islam and democracy. So there are a number of scholars all across the world that have been writing about this, but they are a very small minority voice in Islam. And I think it's important to separate if you really want to. And, and again, I'm not just saying this because I believe it, but you're talking about a quarter of the world's population that's Muslim. You can, if, if you think Islam is a recipe that's, that's doomed to fascism, then a quarter of the world's population, you're basically saying, need to somehow be converted out of Islam and, and somehow leave their faith. Or I think the world would have perished a long time ago if Islam actually taught fascism and, and terrorism as part of its teachings. Yes, we need reformation. The faith is only 1,440 years old. And Christianity at a similar time went through similar reformation at that age in its, in its faith. Yeah, the picture you're describing and, and the way you're talking about this is that it's you're, you're having a political discussion, it sounds like. You're talking about, so I had um, a friend of the show, Yasmin Muhammad, on the show, and she's uh, an atheist. And she, would, she seems to come across and say, listen, that, um, Islam is incompatible with basic human rights of the West and all these things. And we, and we kind of don't need it. Whereas what I'm hearing from you is saying that you can be a Muslim and you can believe in liberal values. And the, the discussion you're describing is saying, if uh, you're, you're painting the picture that uh, a lot of Muslim majority countries around the world are, are entrenching the, their religious beliefs into their political ideology. And that creates or leads towards fascism and, less freedom on the whole but you're saying these two can be reconciled you can be a muslim and devout to your faith and and push for a separation of mosque and state is that is this a political discussion that you're really having well conrad uh, i think it would be naive for me to just sort of agree with you and end my sentence there um i think the reality is and I'm very much, it's like talking to my patients who've, who have cancer. I say, listen, we have treatments. 
but you still need chemotherapy, you need radiation, you need surgery, and then we will hopefully, you'll be part of the 30% that get cured. So the bottom line is, is to get to where we're going, yes, maybe in my heart, my faith has been reformed, but the reality is, it's not as simple as a political conversation. There's deep theological problems in most of the interpretations of the Quran. There's passage in the Quran that says, cut the hands of those who steal. So therefore in Saudi Arabia, the law, if you steal jewelry from a, a jeweler, they have open uh, 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 chopping off of the hands done on the chop block there uh, for their laws against homosexuality. The Iranian government denies its existence, but if they feel somebody publicly declares homosexuality, they throw him, they throw them off cliffs. And that's because their interpretation of the Quran is against homosexuals. Um, there are passages that, for example, call for the, not in the Quran, in the Hadith, that call for the, the, the killing of apostates and people who leave the faith. So that's not the Islam I know. I can give you an apologetic. The apologetic answer to that is, okay, I was in the U.S. Navy. I signed up for 11 years. If eight years into that, I told the Navy, you know what? I want to leave. They would say, no, you can't. And I said, no, I want to leave. I either then become a deserter or if it's in a time of war, I could get killed for treason legitimately as a traitor or, or abandoning my military. So what happened was initially in the beginning of Islam, when being Muslim also included membership in, a, in the military with Muhammad, it sort of made sense that if people abandoned the Muslim military, that they would then be convicted of treason or being traitors as they would with any military even today. But there was no secular society then. That is a very deep apologetic to say that and not realize that it has nothing to do with faith practice. It was because at that time they mixed faith identity with state, with military identity. The AKP in Turkey does it today. When the Turkish government, a so-called democracy, went into Syria and started slaughtering Kurds a year and a half ago, they did it in a jihad. The Saudis, when they go to war, do it in a jihad against Iran. So these are all things that need deep theological reform. They're not just political. But at the end of the day, the answer to your question is, I see the, the process of secularization of Islam going through a business plan, if you will. The first stage is the separation of mosque and state. Get the clerics that are in the mosques out of politics, get them out of uh, our governments, and allow there to begin to develop civil society, and especially in Muslim-majority countries in Tunisia, Iraq, Egypt, etc. You've seen the Arab awakening tell you that they don't want to be run by dictators anymore, that they're trying to shed the yoke of dictatorship and begin in the West to develop civil society organizations like our American Islamic Forum that begin to have this conversation. I wrote, I've given tons of speeches on the synergy of libertarianism with Islam, the synergy of religious freedom with uh, aspects of Islam. And what do we do with passages that are problematic? We say, okay, the passage says, sever the hand of those who steal. Maybe sever means remove them from public, put them in prison, etc. That makes sense. So you can change just like Judaism went through reform, Christianity went through reform. You can change the literal to the metaphorical and begin to modernize. But it is naive to say that that has already happened in Islam. It hasn't, at least from, if you go into the textbooks that are in the mosques on the shelves of the books of Al-Azhar in Cairo in Saudi Arabia, my interpretations are not there. 
The clerics have not codified modern interpretations of Islam. So it's by what you're describing, there, there's a very literal interpretation of the Quran currently. How, how did you talk to me about your, your faith journey and how you came to what you're saying is your interpretation of the Quran, a more metaphorical reformed understanding of it. And what did your parent, like did your parents also have this understanding or is this something that you came to whilst growing up in America? Yeah, so I grew up in a small town in Wisconsin, Nina, Wisconsin, right south of Green Bay, about 90 miles north of Milwaukee and Chicago. And um, I learned my Islam in a small mosque that my parents built that was uh, a two-room mosque that uh, I studied Quran uh, with my mom and with other uh, um, leaders from the small, the 10 families that formed this mosque. And uh, I had in many ways, a very naive relationship with God and with my scripture and with my worship and that it was very personal. I saw Islam as a pietistic value-based uh, system for uh, morals and values, but I didn't see it as a political movement. Then I went to the University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee and got exposed to the Muslim Student Association. And all of a sudden I saw prayers on Friday, no longer just about spirituality and humility and integrity uh, and those values, but rather about Israel and about how America, this was in 1985. I remember the first sermon I went to uh, in Milwaukee, the, the, the imam was talking about how American troops are colonizing Afghanistan and the CIA is, is uh, um, brainwashing Muslims and, and uh, uh, now trading one master of the Russians with another. Uh, and, and how evil America is to continue the colonization that had been such a problem over the past. And I went up to the imam and I said, you know, listen, uh, what, I came, I took time out of my classes to come to Friday prayer and you're talking politics. You're not talking religion. What, what are you doing? And he said, who are you? Do you have a degree in Sharia? Who are you to question me? You're some 17 year old kid that should not be, you should sit in the mosque, be quiet, and respectful and not disrespect your elders, etc." I called my mom after I left there and I said, what is this? This is not Islam. What is this? She said, oh, they bring their politics with them and don't worry about it. And she sort of explained that this was not Islam, but it was part of the culture and tried to separate that out. And uh, then I saw in the Muslim Student Association, they did the same thing. They, they, I tried to have a food, uh, uh, international food day, and all of a sudden it became a fight between the Palestinians and the Israelis about who owned baklava. And whether Batlawa was a uh, 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 and hummus was an Israeli dessert and, and snack, or whether it was a Palestinian one, and the Palestinians then re removed themselves from it and decided not to be a part of it. I talk about a lot of this in my book, but the bottom line is, is then I realized, I then completely resigned after three months from being vice president of the Muslim Student Association to saying, you know what, I want nothing to do with these people. I started to get closer to some of the Indonesian community, Malaysian community who were much less political, more theologically oriented that were in the school. And a lot of that was cultural also. And found myself starting to learn and be a quick study on what is political Islam, who funded the Muslim Student Association, how the Saudi money came into it and how they were trying to affect foreign policy and what the movements were that they were trying to influence. And then I joined the Navy, became apolitical in my 11 years in the Navy, but started to continue to read 
as I was uh, uh, deploying and other things and got to see some of the world. Uh, and so my activism had to take a pause, which you really can't do when you're in uniform. Uh, but I, I continued to read heavily about the theology. You know, I asked, for example, people who the Hadith says, kill a Jew behind every stone. And Hamas uses that in their charter. And I said, is that really Islam? So then I quickly learned that while I believe the Arabic scripture of the Quran is God's word, the vast majority of radicalism in Islam comes from Hadith, which is the sayings of the Prophet. Most of those sayings of the Prophet are fabricated and we need to clean out as being corrupted and not really the not anywhere near the word of God, let alone the word of Muhammad. Do most American Muslims share your picture and understanding of the Quran? Or do they, do they have the picture of the imam that you spoke to in the mosque that is deeply political? That's a great question. Um, the bottom line is, is I can give you some assumptions from my experience mm. with over 30 communities in, across the country. Um, but I can tell you, if we had the resources and the funding, that's one of the first things we, we need to study. Now, Pew has done some studies on polling and things like that. And the problem is, is they were written either by Islamists or by non-Muslims who don't understand the community. So the questions were not great. They looked at, they looked at, for example, mosque going rates. Some of the numbers were interesting. They said, for example, only 40 to 50 percent of Muslims go to the mosque twice a year. Uh, uh, 10 to 15 percent go once a month. So that tells you already that many of the organizations at the highest number, the, the, the number, if you look at Muslim organizations, the highest number of affinity was 12%, which tells you that 88% of American Muslims don't even identify with any Muslim organizations. So when the media looks to Muslim representatives, they're picking from organizations that are identity groups by definition. They're Islamists by definition because they are pushing forth this sort of Muslim movement, identity movement, if you will. Now, the numbers as far as interpretation, there's some concerning numbers out there. For example, if you if you looked at Pew Poll uh, globally about what percent of Muslims think apostates should be killed, the lowest number is around 70%. The highest is 90, 95% in, in, in Egypt or in Pakistan. Now, why are those numbers so frightening? It's sort of like if you ask Catholics what percent uh, think contraception should be used, and they would, I think, over 95% would tell you, yes, no, you cannot use contraception based on Catholic uh, canonic doctrine. Now, if you ask them how many actually do it, uh, probably 95% say they do use contraception. So the reality is if you ask Muslims what the Sharia says, I think most of them will say, oh, so when you look at reform, I would tell you, it's not just the theological actual um, material that needs to be reformed, but there's some behaviors in our communities that need some deep reform. And what are those behaviors? Tribalism is a huge path. One of the chapters in my book is about the, the sickness, the pathology of some of the tribalism that we see with honor killings and with, with uh, abuse and torture of women and other things. It, it's, it's just a, a guttural, visceral, evil tribalism that is just sort of the way things have been done. Um, secondly is questioning authority, critical thinking. I remember my father has a story on how he was put in, in confinement as a high school kid at 16. Why? 
because he asked the teacher, they were doing military training, which these fascist governments do. And he was in class and he said, well, why are we using Soviet Jeeps? You know, why do I heard, he said, I heard American Jeeps work better in the, in the winter than these Soviet Jeeps do. And they said, you can't ask questions like that, get out of the class. And they put him in confinement for two weeks. So, you know, and I use that story because my parents were very, very pro-American. My dad did his undergrad in, in London and his father was a newspaper man who was in and out of house arrest in Syria. But part of what happens after two generations, at least of dictatorship, whether they're secular ones like Assad or theological ones, is that the muscle memory of, of asking questions, of critical thinking, of doubting your parents. I mean, you know, I was blessed to have parents that let me question whether God existed, let me question whether the Quran was the word of God and, and look at other faiths and read the Old Testament and New Testament and, and Hindu scripture and, and Buddhist scripture and be able to say that, you know what? Yes, you were born into Islam, but you have a choice always. You could leave, you could enter. You know, there's a liberal way of thinking that there, you know, for example, my parents taught me that fasting in Wisconsin, where we fast in Ramadan from, from sunrise to sunset, nothing to eat or drink, not even water. She, she would tell me the fast in Saudi Arabia is absurd. They close down all the restaurants during the day. They sleep during the day and then they're awake at night. And it's like a loophole. Ramadan's supposed to be challenging. It's like the Yom Kippur fast or the Catholic fast and, and Lent, the Lentian fast. These are supposed to be challenging. And yet the Islamic countries make it into this uh, cultural sort of uh, a loophole. So the fast that I did in Wisconsin growing up was more of a real fast than the so-called Islamic ones in Saudi Arabia or Iran. The, the picture that I that I hear you describe, as you talk about growing up Muslim, the differences you might see between your faith and the faith that comes across in in other countries like Syria, Iraq, and Iran. I'm wondering if if the if the conversation if we're connecting the wrong dots when it comes to the conversation over Islam, Islamists, Muslims, is, is that an unhelpful monolith? Which I, which I guess is why you're trying to say Islamists, which is bringing in the political element of it. But are we talking about something more geopolitical, a certain co-opting of Islam in these countries for political purposes? Because you described that you, you gravitated towards the Indonesian Muslims because they didn't have the same level of political infiltration within their version of Islam. So are, are we, are we having the wrong conversation entirely to talk about Islam and it's Islam's problem or Islamists? Pro well, I won't use that word, but let's say Islam's problems, like say we might talk about on Fox news or in, in the Australian media. Is this more of a conversation around geopolitical tensions, wars in the regions and uh, different countries fighting one another that then co-opt the religion of the area to their ends. So, wow, that, that is a very thoughtful question, Conrad. Um, <laughs> I, I, I have, uh, my answer to that is yes and no, but for the most part, no. And, and the reason is, is just like cigarettes and smoking and tobacco can cause lung cancer, People don't realize that I think the majority, if not, you know, a significant plurality of lung cancer is genetic. It's unrelated to smoking. Yes, tobacco might accelerate the cancer gene. Yes, 
geopolitics can accelerate the problem of political Islam, but left to its own device, a monarchy that's a tribe running a country is a sickness. It's a pathology. It is not the way, you know, I don't believe in genetic supremacy. So, you know, I believe the Islam I was taught uh, was, you know, was not about a family running a government for generation after generation. Now, could you blame the Brits for pulling out of Saudi Arabia and handing to the, the House of Saud that entire country so that they owned all the property rights of the oil and the people had no rights? Absolutely. They're, they were, they were uh, accelerants for that tribalism. But that tribalism already for, for centuries was solidified by another sickness, which was the Ottomans that completely outlawed Arabic language for centuries, that completely then militarized society. All of the renaissance of Islam that happened between 700 and 1100, where you had, uh, I mean, actually Bernard Lewis has a number of books on this that are fantastic, The Jews of Islam, where he talks about Maimonides doing some of his best work in, in Islamic uh, uh, dominated Spain. So I'm not saying those were free societies, but they were certainly the most modern societies at the time. But then it went into a massive uh, uh, withdrawal into a, a backward tradition, into uh, uh, reactionary times from 1500 to 1900. So there's a lot of historical pathology. Bernard Lewis has another book called What Went Wrong? So geopolitics of the 20th century certainly was the uh, uh, nails in the coffin of many of the problems that existed historically in Islamic history. But having said that, you know, for example, a lot of the Islamists like to blame Orientalism and blame some of the colonial issues, uh, uh, you know, whether it was uh, the Brits in India or the Dutch in Indonesia or the French in Syria. Uh, but, you know, my family, my, if you talk to my, my dad when he was alive, he would have told you, listen, there was a lot of good that we got from the French educational system in Syria that had not been there because of how frozen in time the Islamic system was for centuries in Syria. But yet the French, when they pulled out, left a vacuum. The military had not been run by, by uh, uh, any uh, average Syrians, but rather the most uh, corrupt folks in society. So therefore, they left a vacuum that created military coup after coup, even after the French pulled out. So yes, they are the, the colonialism, a lot of those problems were accelerants to some of the foundational tribalism and ignorance and, and uh, 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 you know, resistance to true reforms that existed. I, let me give you an example. In Islamic history, there used to be three to 4,000 schools of Sharia thought between 700 and 1100 CE. Now there's four Sunni schools and four uh, and two maybe four Shia schools of thought. That's it in the entire world. So that tells you what happened to diversity of ideas in Islam. And that's not because of geopolitics. That's because of a ton of of internal uh, pathologies that completely digested itself uh, internally because of uh, internal Muslim issues unrelated to external factors. It, it sounds like when I hear that, it sounds like you're, you're not describing Islam as the problem, but fundamentalism as the problem, a fundamentalism that shuts down the diversity of ideas, a fundamentalism that puts like you sound like you're on the margins arguing for reform. Um, but it, 
and that's that's I guess to my question before that says are we talking about the wrong thing because when we talk about Muslims and Islam on the news and and whether they're a threat is it is it are we it really sounds like fundamentalism that can exist in every form I mean you talk to the Catholics and the Protestants in Northern Ireland you could argue that Christianity is the problem there and the division between the two um, religions or the pattern of of fundamentalism um what what do you what's your take on that i could not agree more and and let me go one step further conrad it's it's not just fundamentalism in folks who are religiously obsessed about simply religion and they don't think about life in many different areas be it medicine economic economics uh, uh civil you know, civil society integration and uh, business and free markets, when they're very narrow in their scope, which is probably uh, uh, true for many fundamentalists, then innovation stops. So the fundamentalist, and in Islam, there's another term I want to introduce here that I think is really important because it highlights really what you've been trying to tell me, which is the, the Islamists are political agents, if you will. Then in Islam, there's a bigger group called Salafists. Salaf in Arabic means the friends of the Prophet. So the Salafists are in many ways fundamentalists in Islam, which is actually a bigger problem, like you're pointing out. The Salafists look backwards. They're trying to reproduce and imitate. They want to imitate the Prophet. If the Prophet took a nap at 2, 2 p.m. in the afternoon for 30 minutes, they try to do that every day and mimic him. And many of us reject that you know, yes, I try to, you know, be of good character and, 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 and faithful and ethical and things like that. But mimicking him is not, I think, what the prophet would want or is necessarily Islamic. So Salafists look backwards versus reformers. And, and, you know, I think one of the other antagonisms in Islam is the battle between reformers who look forward and revivalists that look backwards and want to revive the glory days of Islam. So they don't want any innovation. The Saudis put people in jail every day for a crime they call bid'ah. Wahhabi Islam, which is the type of Islam that dominates the Saudi peninsula. Wahhabis believe that bid'ahs, innovation, where you try to create something that didn't exist at the time of the Prophet, is not only a crime, it is anti-Islam, and thus you should be tortured and put in prison if you do bid'ahs. So my response to folks is, listen, if you believe as a Muslim that you can use new medical science to treat cancers, if you can do uh, uh, new computer science to, as they see the Saudis have computers that are filling their oil, your, their oil technology, et cetera, why can't you have political science that says, you know what? America and the West determined that the best political science we find is a democracy that federalizes states, that gives them independent rights and, and allows people to be equal before the law, regardless of faith identity, regardless of race, etc. So these are new innovations in politics and the Salafists and Islamists reject that. There's an old saying that I learned from Egyptians that are not part of the brotherhood. They say the Islamists use religion to get political control and the Salafists use politics to get religious control, but both are bad. <laughs> right. When I, when I hear you talk, when you're talking about the Salafists looking backwards and the reformers looking forwards, uh, as, I, as I map these concepts on, 
Christian societies, Christian religion, American politics, Australian politics. You sound like a progressive in the political sense as well. And as I, as I listen to you discuss the, the failings of the politicization of religion to gain control and the threat that that poses to democracies that have separated church and state and then the necessity of that. And you believe in that as when you say I'm an American, that these are the ideals you believe in. And, and I, I wonder if um, the, the discussion you're having saying we need to reinterpret these, these, uh, uh, the, these texts in the Quran, we need to go, okay, this isn't literal. This is metaphorical and this is contextual. And this is, this is, this happened, X amount of years ago, and we need to we need to bring this forward and, and take what it might be saying for the time, and how does that apply now? And the reason I say you sound like a progressive because on this podcast we've done a series with a lot of people who've deconstructed from Christianity, and the difference between a conservative Christian and a progressive Christian is that same tendency to go, well, listen, I actually don't think when I re reinterpret and reassess what Paul was talking about regarding to homosexuality. It wasn't a category back then. He, he wasn't probably talking about that here today. That's kind of the progressive take on the, on the Christian religion. And the conservative wants to read that more literally saying, no, no, the book says this. It, it, homosexuality is an abomination. It says it right here. So we are, we are going to oppose this. And in America, that tie between the religious Christian and the political Christian and the Republican is really close, more close than here in Australia. And so... I wonder if you sit in an interesting spot where you're a reformer that sits in this conservative camp that largely still looks backwards to the Christian traditions of old, family values of old, and finds as a threat many of these progressives' reinterpretations of these, if you're a progressive Christian, they reinterpret that. And that's a big um, threat to, to that side. What's your take on, on where, where, where I see you sitting? Uh, I, I, I'm 99% to where I think I can answer your question, but quick question. When you talk yes. about progressive Christians, can you quickly redefine that? I know I, I understood what you said, but I want to yes. make sure you and I are on the same page because part of my answer is going to be my, my difficulty with political progressivism in the West, which okay. is very yes. different. So define for me, when you talk about Christian progressives, what I want to make sure we're on the same page there. What are you talking about? Yeah, it's, the, it's that tendency to do what you were talking about before, which is read the biblical text of far more metaphorically than, okay. than literally. Yeah, in, in, okay. in that sense. And, and what I find that connective tissue between the political and the religious progressives is that the, you'll find the progressive Christian be far more on board with legislation to combat climate change because they go, we're not here to dominate the earth. We're here to look after it. And, and we, we're not here to just escape the earth and go to heaven. We should do what we can politically to help climate change, alleviate poverty. And these look like progressive ideas of universal health care like Australia has. Gotcha. Okay. Now yeah. I know what you're talking about. Um, so please, if I can, we ha when we have this conversation between, and I, I'm, you're a Christian, right? From what I understand or, or yes, that's been my upbringing. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So between a Christian and a Muslim, yep. the most common problem I have is people apply sort of a, a historical approach to what our, my community is going through. And we are in a completely different time. So 
right now, for example, people say, oh, Zudi, you're for the separation of mosque and state. You must definitely be a member of Americans United for the Separation of Church and State. That is a far-left secularist institution. And if you look at France, for example, France's laïcité policy are very secular. And I, for the most part, am in favor of a lot of the spirit behind it, but not from governmental prohibition of personal practice of faith. For example, many of the, the women in my family decide to wear a hijab. France's law against hijab, they might see it as progressive and secular. Uh, I see that as inhuman. It, it, it is, it is an individual's right to decide what they wear around their head. Now, I'm against the niqab that covers the face because I think it creates an anonymity that is uh, uh, inhuman also. But that's a whole different debate you and I can have if you want. But the, the bigger question is, Islam is at a different stage of separation of church and state issues than Christianity and the West is in its own debates about these things. Because right now, hyper-secularism is in the West having a, a battle against those who want to legislate religion through government in the far right, if you will. I'm, I'm not for that either. I'm more libertarian in my mindset when it comes to uh, government's role in these things. Uh, but I'm also very non-interventional when it comes to government confiscating income I make for taxation to put forth its own, you know, ideas. Uh, uh, government uh, interfering in 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 school education. I'm much for much more for private education, uh, whether it's through religious schools, whatever it might be. So these things might be considered conservative ideas today. So all I can tell you is that the shorter answer for you is. The Muslim community has not gone through a lot of the maturity, the maturation necessary to begin to see where some of these issues fall out for us. Because right now, while the Islamists might be working with the progressivists, I might be progressive when it comes to Muslim interpretation, my interpretations of certain Quranic passages, but I would not interpret that as, as progressive the way progressivism is defined in the West today. I would interpret it as coming to the, and you might call this fundamentalism. I would call it just getting to the fundamentals of the ideas of what God was teaching us in the Quran without getting government involved in it. And one of the things we teach our Muslim Liberty Project is we say, listen, if, if you force religion through government, then what's the use of judgment day? If you believe God is going to judge us for our sins, therefore government should allow us to live in a laboratory that allows us to sin. Therefore, alcohol, the, you know, all the things that you think you should legislate against, gambling, should be allowed because God wants to know that you made a choice not to take it. If government makes those things illegal, which is why I'm very libertarian in some of these things, then it's no longer a religious choice. It's actually you become a robot and you're not making these choices. You have to have the opportunity to sin for it to be a choice. So therefore, to me, that's coming to the root of faith, which is freedom of choice to choose my faith. Now, the, the faith that I choose is very family-oriented, is, is very much in traditional values of, of conservative dress and things like that, that I think bring out more equality in human nature, but that's another debate because um, I think sometimes the exploit, you know, Western uh, um, 
dress sometimes exploits women and has other things that are, and the feminists would agree with me on these things also in many ways. So, uh, you know, progressivism, for example, when you talk about climate change, no, I don't think it's government's role to um, invoke the values of religion. No, I think if, if people believe that climate should be countered, then they should do that on their own through companies that they start, et cetera, without the coercion the coercive forces of central federal government. Mm, I'm, I'm already hearing like, I feel like a lot of this conversation is the political discussion to hear you talk. I hear that very American Republican idea of this is the role of government and very libertarian. So as far as your um, Muslim religion goes, you look at the separation of, of mosque and state and you, you look at that and say, yeah, I want that. But then you look at France and your libertarian leanings of going, the government should not be mandating a ban. That wouldn't be the government's role. And you're, we've, we've very quickly gone into the political discussion, um, which, which essentially, essentially says what you personally believe the role of government is and, and where it should be involved. I want, what's your take on then this, because I guess when we step into the political discussion, I'm still seeing the same pattern, especially when I look at America compared to Australia. Australia is slowly copying America. We can debate whether that's the best decision or not. Um, but there's a political fundamentalism that is very, and the, the tribalism you describe that, that paints that, that countries like Syria, Egypt, that you describe go, okay, the, the tribal and they're using islam to get political agendas or vice versa um i i wonder if there's the threat of the same fundamentalism of and the same religiosity of republicanism v the democratic party in the states that has those same tendencies to subjugate the other so the, these are no longer political parties but when i look at america sometimes it seems to be, we seem to be, ha I see the same patterns that you've discussed when we're talking about Islam. I see the same patterns overlay the political discussions. Let me give you a different narrative. Sometimes when I'm asked, what are some of the same patterns? The mm. response I give is that my role, I see Muslims as a silent majority and the problem is the establishment. So the establishment, the elites in Islam are the cancer the ones that have the billions of oil money. I call them the petro-Islamists, the ones that have the, you know, the Qataris running Al Jazeera, the press TV coming out of Iran. These are the elitists. So I see that we need a grassroots, almost like a Tea Party movement in Islam against the establishment. And that's sort of what created Trump was an anti-establishment movement. And the elitists are no longer trusted. So I see some similarities there. Now, that's not a full full on endorsement of everything President Trump or candidate Trump said or did, but he is a byproduct of a, of a population, a democracy that became very estranged and very doubtful of the trust of its, of its leaders and the elites and the elites on both sides, be it the left in the Democratic Party or the far right in the Republican Party, that the elites uh, were corrupted. And I have similar concerns. So, you know, I think that might some way parallel what you're saying. I, I do think that a lot of the problems in the Muslim world, yes, I keep reverting back to polit political issues. I've testified 
I've testified to the House and the Senate probably eight times on these issues. And the reason I do that every time is I don't I see the West as, you know, if you look at the, the, the companies leading Wall Street, et cetera, innovation in the world, whether it's Elon Musk and Bezos or or, or you know, the bottom line is, is where free markets lead, eventually humanity will follow. And I think if you don't get the West to embrace some of the things that have to happen politically in these countries to, to I mean, look at, for example, Nobel Prize was given to a, uh, a laureate who gave micro loans to, to women in, in Bangladesh and uh, in Indonesia and elsewhere. And they were very successful at Muslim reform, even though that wasn't what he was trying to do, because they finally, once they were economically independent, those women were able to tell their uncles, their fathers, their brothers that their interpretations of Islam were wrong. So I think ultimately this is why we always revert back to politics. I don't, I really couldn't care less if other Muslims reform their Islam. I want every Muslim to have the same opportunity the Western citizens have, which is the ability to interpret their own faith. And that will thus create innovation by free markets of ideas that don't exist right now. The free markets of ideas are snuffed out in Muslim populations because the establishment and the elites are trying to make decisions for them. I can't, when I was on the U.S. Commission on Religious Freedom, I can't tell you how many times the Saudis or others would tell us if we opened up freedom, the Al-Qaeda folks, the ISIS type folks would run this country. In many ways, they were right. But because if you look at Twitter activity in Saudi Arabia, 80 to 90 percent are Wahhabi inspired. Well, that's a, a, a catastrophe that they've created intentionally because the Assads of the world will tell you that as long as ISIS exists, which they allowed to exist, then they have a more legitimate military rule, if you will. So, you know, a lot of that milieu feeds one another. But I do think the West in its fight against the elite and the establishment right now parallels some of what we need to do. Mm. Yeah, you're drawing... It's the, the, the game we play at the beginning where we categorize and box people into, into each category. This discussion with you has been very interesting because we seem to be weaving and ducking between these different political categories, religious categories, the role of government, and there's a million different debates that can be had in the nuanced discussions of each one. And what I find really interesting is, is the stories being told. The story that is told when I Google you on Fox News is that extremist Islam is the problem. Uh, we, need, we need to somehow sort out Muslim as a relig uh, Islam as a religion. It needs to reform in these ways. And I, and I understand that story. But then when I hear you talk about the startup that gives micro loans to Muslim women in different countries alleviates poverty, empowers women, drives innovation, and also leads to a progression in ideas uh, in Islam that, uh, and then leads, to, and then that might feed into the political change, the interconnected nature that we've been talking about of politics, religion. You've got one story of Fox News that seemed that, I mean, it, some of your segments, I had to laugh. One went for like 30 seconds. There was some other guy yelling and I was like, wow, that's, that's news today. And I just thought, how can we have, like, we've been talking for an hour. There's a million more questions to kind of go into the nuance of it all. Um, and so I, I don't really have a, a clean way to, to kind of, to, to wrap it up there. Um, other than to point out, I think the, the patterns at least that I'm seeing of 
the threat of fundamentalism and the intertwined nature of religion and politics and how grounding factors like poverty, social status, um, historical systems of intervention of different political groups, how it all kind of feeds in and it, t- it takes a long time to, to pull apart. What's your, what's your final take? Do you have any thoughts or things you, you kind of want to add as, as we wrap up? Yeah, I think, thanks for this, Conrad. I, I think it's been uh, an amazing conversation. I, I, I want, you know, I, re- I look, I watched some of your other podcasts and listened. And, and I think one of the things I've made, you know, now we're getting on close to 20 years post 9-11. And one of the huge changes I've had since I was 31, I'm, you know, uh, uh, I'm sorry, I was 33 at the time of 9-11 and now 53. Um, The evolutions I've had is I used to think as a former naval officer that there was military solution that I really was deluded. I, I was deluded into sort of this concept that Bush had, which is mission accomplished, that somehow you remove the dictator and you can fly a flag, mission accomplished, and that's it. The Arab Awakening, I think, in 2011 proved that the Muslim world will do this on their own. They want to shed the yoke of dictatorship. But I also have awoken to the fact that it's not our military that's going to do this. It's not just the dictators and the corrupt institutions they have there. There is some evolution of, of, you know, just like in treating cancer patients, some chemo kills the patient and some others will help them get back to normalcy. And it's going to be a bloody process. So I think ultimately there will be fits and starts. The French had how many revolutions before they settled in democracy uh, in European history? There's, And yet they still reverted back in Europe to fascism uh, in early 20th century. So I do, and, and I keep bringing that up because ultimately we can create the seeds of change here in America and Australia but it is in Muslim majority countries that the laboratories where Islam has been used as a tool and an instrument of oppression will finally be defeated. And liberal Islam will rise up, I think, as, as a personal faith rather than a collective faith that we see in that uh, uh, sort of clickbait that you started with, which I think is a reality, is the red-green alliance between the far left and the Islamists. Uh, but life is short. I think people should not wait too many generations. Uh, we need to look at solutions. Our Muslim reform movement is is part of that. We're a very diverse. I, as a conservative, helped co-found it, but it's not a conservative movement. The majority of Muslims in our Muslim reform movement are left of center. They're feminists, gay rights activists, progressivists politically uh, and in Western thought, if you will. But when it comes to Islam, we united and formed a two-page declaration. People should look that up. It's the Muslim Reform Movement Declaration, which is simply a restatement of many of the of the statements of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that we agree to and say, listen, we are for these principles. This is what we're for. We're not only against political Islam, more importantly, this is what we're for. We believe in the freedom of religion, the freedom of, of, of speech. We think Islam is an idea. It doesn't have any rights. We reject the word Islamophobia because that is a term about an idea. You can't be afraid of an idea. And yet Islamophobia is used to shut down criticism of Islamic ideas. So ideas don't have rights. We believe human beings have rights. So yes, Muslim rights are an issue. 
Islamophobia is a term that the theocrats created so that all of you in the West would never criticize Islam, or if you did, you'd be thought to be bigots. And many Muslims are in jail for Islamophobia uh, and, and other things because they want to prevent free speech. So a lot of these things, the fighting tribalism, the endorsement of free speech, the battles we're having in the West about what can be or cannot be said on Twitter during pandemics, this is the same battle that we, we have in the Muslim community when it comes to fighting theocrats. You're looking right now at the Black Lives Matter movement and some of the debate about critical race theory, etc. They work hand in hand with the same things I was telling Congress in 2007, 2008 about how identity movements are trying to prevent free speech and we're seeing the same thing happen. So the solutions are going to come when we finally figure out what are the core things that the West is going through internally against identity movements and reformists in the Muslim world need to try to operationalize and look us up. My website is aifdemocracy.org and also muslimreformmovement.org. Final question. Do you think in this discussion, when we, when we sit down and we go, okay, here's the problems that these countries have. Here's the problems that Islam has. What do you say to those people that sit across and go, this is a very like colonial way of thinking. We're sitting here thinking like our way is better. They need to be more like us. We need to impose our value system and everything on them. Um, and it completely ignores any kind of critique on America, the issues, the problems it has. As, as an Australian, I could go for quite some time about Australia and America. But what, what, do, you, what do you make of that critique that'll say, like, it's just, it's just colonialism. We're just trying to make them like us. It failed using weapons. And now we're sitting back going, oh, maybe we have to try it another way. On the one hand, I agree with that. Yeah, we, we should not be forcing uh, and doing, I hate the term, you know, nation building. That is, I've never used that term. I don't believe in it. You can't go into another country and, and impose their values. That is Orientalism, which was failed as a concept. And, and actually that will almost sometimes ensure that they don't adopt the values that might be better for them. Almost the way kids don't do what their parents say, even though we're, we're trying to do it from wisdom. But having said that, there's also within that question that you just asked me, it becomes this bigotry of low expectations. I remember Joy Behar interviewing me on MSNBC 10 years ago. And she said, who are we to go into Iran and Saudi Arabia and tell them how to do their, you know, we have our own problems. The same thing you just said. And I said, are you telling me that the women in Saudi Arabia want to live that way? Are you telling me that they, they want to be tortured for taking off their hijab and, and, and not being as free as you are as, as a liberated feminist? Uh, or is that a bigotry of low expectations where you, you feel that Muslim women somehow choose that and, and yet they deserve less of respect because you have lower expectations because somehow we're ethnocentric? So I do think we have to be careful. The final answer to your question is that all politics are local. No, I'm not saying we should do it in Egypt. Do it here. In Arizona, where, where I am, in Australia, in Melbourne, are you, are, are, is your community listening to the speeches? I had a debate with a so-called Islamic scholar at the university in your town, and he stood up and he said, I would never want to die for the Australian military. I, I, I would rather die for Egypt. And, and then he forced me to remove the video of, of his speech uh, at the time that he, he and I were debating. And he said, I'm not embarrassed about this. And I said, boy, that's pretty... That's pretty interesting that this country gives you freedom and everything, and you wouldn't even want to be part of its military. 
And then he went on and said, well, that's not what this country is about. And I said, well, this is the debate you should be having. I think I, I applauded him for his honesty. But I said, it's fascinating that immigrants who, who come here or their families do then have kids who either adore the countries that they live in and want to fight for them and, and protect their freedoms and, and give back. And it's not only what the country can do for them, but what they can do for their country, as Kennedy said. But others sometimes uh, uh, hate the countries that they live in and develop a disgust for it. So that sometimes is what radicalizes Muslims. If you look at some of the mosques in Boston that radicalized the Boston bombers, Nidal Hassan, who killed 13 and, and injured 32, had a resume, Conrad, similar to mine, where he was a army doctor, was on a scholarship, was almost basically born in the U.S. at the age of four, and yet he was radicalized because he grew up in a milieu that hated America. So these concepts we need to address and can only be addressed when you look locally. At I can tell you, I've, I wrote a piece called Me Too Except for Muslims. And there's a whole, there are tons of affidavits of, of Muslim women that have been abused, molested, attacked by imams and other prominent Muslims that I can't get the, the light of day in American media to pay attention to it because it's too volatile, because Muslims are sort of a protected class, if you will, while the Me Too movement is sweeping now, swept through the left, Hollywood, and everything. And yet Muslim misogynists that are imams in, 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 in clerical clothing and beards seem to somehow, there's tons of stories out there with affidavits and, and you will find many lawyer, legal cases online that expose what's happened in mosques, etc. And nobody wants to cover it because it's a protected group because of this bigotry of low expectations. So you can see locally in, in, in what's said about Israel, what's said about Jews, what's said about women in mosques. How many mosques in your town have women on their board of directors? How many mosques in your town are, are addressing the reform issues or have books that are modernized in their interpretation of Quran. So it can start in Melbourne, it can start in Sydney, and it can start in mm. towns like Phoenix here in Arizona. So, so that fear to avoid, as me, as I try and avoid the arrogance of ethnocentrism and try and be as least colonial as possible because I look at the damages that's caused all over the world, you're saying that slips us into a bigotry of low expectations that goes, look at this, this guy over here, he's been sexist, Harvey Weinstein, how dare he, blah, 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 rightly so. Like, don't treat women like that. But then you're saying it's completely missed uh, the Muslim community in mosques and things like that because I, it sounds like it's that fear of 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 trying to not impose my view on the world i know i said last question before but I've, i really want to get your thoughts on this one if, if you'll if you'll humor me um sure when when we talk so here's here's the the picture we where the questions we ask and the discussions we have they tell stories and they paint pictures of the world as what the problems are you watch fox news you get a certain set of problems you watch cnn you get a certain set of problems sorry australians they're not our news channels but we'll draw the parallels um so when you're talking about the dangers of extremism and dictatorship that comes from within certain Islamic cultures, um, what about the critique that the left has? And, and I, don't, I, want to, I want to use that word. It, in America, it's a slur now. It's super general. It doesn't mean much. Oh, bloody leftist. Like Biden's a leftist. Bernie's a leftist. And so is, so is Venezuela. Like as an Australian, 
very different. We have universal healthcare. We're not communist. That's an Australian perspective. But what about the rising threat of far-right nationalist extremism? Um, data comes out and says that, especially in Australia, actually, the Australian example is that nationalism and violence from right nationalist groups is now increasing. And I think certain trends in Germany and America are the same. Um, stats show even more of a threat than Islamist extremism. So when we, when we have these conversations, um, what's your take on the, the threat that potentially a fundamentalism of American nationalism or Australian nationalism, can that have the same pattern that you're talking about within Islam? So, you know, I have to tell you the, first of all, let me predicate my agreement with you with the saying, with the thought that I do think that the threat of American nationalism or the far right that you're seeing, especially since the Trump administration all over the media is exaggerated. I'm sorry. I, I just think it's exaggerated. Yes, there is, you know, January 6th was a problem, et cetera, but for them to say that somehow this is a attempted insurrection against the government and, you know, all the civil strife that they're claiming is a bit exaggerated. And having said that, I probably get more hate, uh, uh, hate literature and speech from neo-Nazi groups in America than I do Islamists, believe it or not. And, and the reason is, is they see me as, as a, you know, they say I'm a wolf in sheep's clothing and that I'm, I'm deluding the West and, and deluding people into thinking that Islam can come to terms with democracy, etc. Um, and the greatest example, I talk about the fact that, yes, to me, the solution to political Islam, I always say that I joined the Navy because I would die for the American flag. I, I do stand for the American flag. I am offended at folks that kneel and don't want to respect our flag. Um, and But as a libertarian, reason, you're okay with that. <laughs> Yeah, I am. I am. I, I'm not a capital L libertarian. I have problems with the Libertarian Party, uh, but okay. I am a conservative with libertarian leanings. But yes, I, I do believe that the national identity that I was blessed that my father had and allowed me to have now is, is an identity that gives me the ability to have the freedom to make these choices. And that without that, I would be in prison. And, and, and Izbegovic was the president of Bosnia for four for, for however many years, he wrote a book called Islam Between East and West. And he said he was never closer to God than when he was in solitary confinement under Tito in Yugoslavia. So he said, you know what? I don't need freedom to get close to God. I don't need freedom for my religion. But what I need freedom is for is to be human, to create poetry and music and literature and things that animals can't do, things that are human we need our governments to give us the oxygen and the freedom to do. It's not about getting close to God. That you can do in solitary confinement. So that's the difference is that, to me, that's what all of this work is about. Now, nationalism is really the vehicle in which you develop unity in the military, unity in society, and what you would defend. Yes, there is a certain entity that you can't have anarchy if you're going to have a Department of Defense you're going to ultimately need a society that can protect its borders and protect what it stands for. And justice needs to be blind, etc. So you need some of these things. Now, hyper-nationalism is the problem, is a massive problem. That's what Assad is in Syria. It's what Hitler was. It is what fascism is by definition. Hyper-nationalism 
is an equal and opposite reaction to political Islam. Austria, and I've been very public on Austrian television, on Turkish television, on global television, on how Sebastian Kurz in Austria recently, a couple years ago, outlawed the idea of political Islam after there was a a Christian uh, uh, priest who was killed by an ISIS operative in October uh, 2020, just uh, less than a year ago. And he then put out tweets and put out motions to the legislature, the parliament there, saying that he wanted to make political Islam illegal and that ultimately if anyone's found harboring not terrorism, but the idea of political Islam, they will be arrested. I said, this is the this is a good way to empower Islamists, that you can only defeat bad ideas through the antiseptic of sunlight, that the 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 penchant for national groups, nationalist groups to try to to try to outlaw ideas that are threatening their identity is not going to work. It never works. The classic example is the Saudis and Iran and other countries. It failed that, uh, uh, you know, for example, when the Brotherhood failed, you saw al-Sisi come to power in Egypt. The, the, the coup method of taking over from the Brotherhood actually empowered the Brotherhood repeatedly, decade after decade, by pushing them underground and allowing them to flourish. And bottom line is, is that, yes, we need to defeat political Islam, but we need to do it above ground and not by outlawing them and making them into victims and uh, basically telling them that the West is somehow fascist rather than being about free thinking and critical and critical thinking. Hmm. Uh, Dr. Jassa, I've taken more of your time than I said I would. Thanks so much for for taking so much time to talk to talk to me if people want to follow your stuff and see wh- what you're up to where can they do that they can do it at aif as in forum aifdemocracy.org or at muslimreformmovement.org and find me on twitter at dr zudi jasser d-r-z-u-h-d-i-j-a-s-s-e-r and i also have a podcast on itunes and and uh, soundcloud and elsewhere it's called reform this if you made it to the end of this episode, I could I could probably go for another hour with Dr. Jasser. Uh, many, many more things to definitely discuss. We'll have to catch up or do another episode sometime. If you made it to the end of this episode, like an hour 20 in, and you disagree with everything he's said, then you, are, my, you, my friend, are the spirit of Ideas Digest. If you can listen to someone you disagree with for that long, maybe you might understand them. And then at least, if you still disagree, you'll know specifically why. And hopefully we'll be able to humanize him a little bit so you can see where he's coming from. Um, Thanks so much for tuning in and we will catch you in the next episode.